You're now listening to Sanity at the Movies, Pet Cemetery Edition. Hey everybody, welcome to Sanity at the Movies. No, we're not talking about Stephen King's Pet Cemetery, or the sequel to Stephen King's Pet Cemetery, or the remake of Stephen King's Pet Cemetery. Nor are we talking about the book Pet Cemetery by Stephen King. Those are that wouldn't even be under the purview of the podcast. What were you thinking, idiot? No, we're talking about one of the most acclaimed independent films of all time and my personal staff pick for the year of 2023, Anno Domini. Skates of Heaven, 1978, Errol Morris's first documentary, the movie that made no less than Werner Herzog eat his shoe. That's a true story. This is a documentary about pet cemeteries. And I'm a man, neither a pet nor a cemetery. I'm a man named Nathan. I'm an obedient host. We've got Benjamin J. Solzer, the preacher is the teacher of cinema right there. Hello. And let's. why don't you introduce a man whose dogs aren't barking right now. <laughs> Maybe they are, but we haven't been walking around, so it'd be weird if they were. I'm wearing these like snow boots, and they are kind of hot. Your dogs are barking a little bit. My dogs are in slippers right now because we record at my house. That's where Top Secret Studio B is. I guess it's not so top secret anymore, but what part of my house? You don't know. And where's my house located? You'll never find it. Ben, in any case, <laughs> the old dog barker himself. Are you gonna? You should introduce him. Yeah. Wait, is he the dog barker or am I? I don't know what you were. Uh, the old whisperer. Do- He's the dog whisperer. If you're the dog, then Jake's probably whispered things to you before, I suppose. <laughs> I, yeah. I just go around and whisper to dogs. And <laughs> yeah. <I> do. yeah. <laughs> this dog bites, Nathan. Yeah. Better be careful. You call me a dog. It's like an insult. Gonna get bit. Oh, you're the dog now. I'm good. I thought the, you were calling me the dog. So right. I was like, I'm gonna play into this. You're like, I accept your frame insult, and I'll bite you. And I'll bite you. That's right. <laughs> yep. Okay. <laughs> All right. I'm glad we have that cleared up. This is Pastor Jake Menzel. He's the pastor who's a master of cinema. That's right. Now we're talking about Errol Morris's Gates of Heaven today. So what? <laughs> I'm trying to think if there was a pun there, but there's not really a pun for baggage. What? Catish? No, no, no. Nope, nope. There is no pun. There is no pun. I did that as Yoda, but I was (laughs) taking a line from The Matrix. I guess Heroes Uh Journey films run together after a while. They do. Would one of you guys, gentlemen, explain what this movie is for the person who perhaps has not heard of it? It's a documentary about very sad people who. Oh, man. I don't yeah, want to talk about this. I know. It's <laughs> to just think about. <laughs> oh my goodness. And funny. I'll tell you this much. I started out really enjoying it and laughing, and it went sour on me as it just kept going and going and going because it just felt meaner and meaner and meaner. So well, that's my take. That is a large part of the discourse around this movie. And Errol Morris has thoughts about whether it was mean, which we'll get to. But yes, that was one of the things that people were saying when this movie hit the scene was, man, because it's one of those documentaries where they get people to talk about themselves and then they let the camera sit there. They get they let the people get comfortable and they let the people just really reveal some things about themselves. And you could argue about whether it's fair or not. And it's cut together in a very particular Hey, We'll talk about it. But basically, <laughs> it's a documentary about 
pet cemeteries. It starts with one pet cemetery, which is run by this dude, and it goes under pretty quickly in the narrative. And then all those pets are shipped to another pet cemetery. So basically, we see interviews with the people from a failed pet cemetery and the people from a very successful, affluent pet cemetery. And I don't know, I'm trying to think of something that would capture the tone or the... Because that, that I've really told you nothing about the movie in, in saying that. No, Jake told you, you a little haven't. bit more about the movie when he told you he started out by finding it kind of funny and then... Well, people... What Errol Morris likes to do is let people talk. You don't... Although later in his movies it changes, you don't hear him asking any questions in this movie. You never see him. His subjects just talk and they talk and they reveal themselves and they contradict themselves and they make themselves look foolish at times and they kind of show their sadness and loneliness to you just by talking about banal questions. Right. The answering banal questions as they go. You get a real, you get to see (laughs) into some of their depths and contradictions and that's what makes it seem like it's mean and sad. He just lets people talk and keeps giving them rope and rope yeah. and rope and rope. And even when they like pause, okay, are we done with that question? He just sits there and they feel the need to fill up more space. And the more they do, the worse it gets. Yeah, and they're just like, hey, how can I fill this space? Uh, I guess I could bear the depths of my stupid, sad little soul to the and camera. I guess I could contradict everything I just said by getting real about my child or my husband or my ex-girlfriend or my... Well, and here's the thing. So, if it's if he applies this technique to Mick Jagger, I don't know why I pulled him out of a hat, but if he applies this technique to a public figure, to a celebrity, to a politician, none of us mind because these are people that have agreed to be part of public life, part of the discord. They've agreed to reveal and they, they should know what they're doing when they go into an interview. And if Errol Morris can get them to open up like that, then that's great. Now, maybe they've he's got the best of them. And they lost the exchange if he gets them to open up as much as he gets these people to open up. But we understand when a big celebrity goes into a situation like this, they know what's at stake or they should. Right. And so we love watching. And they have people around them, even if they don't know what's at stake. They should have people around them that know what's at stake and that are there to help protect them and help. Right. Whereas these people are just people that some dude came up and said, I want to do a documentary about the thing that you think is really special. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you a question, some questions and make a movie about it. And they are the kookiest, most eccentric cast of characters that you could ask for. I mean, yeah. And and yes, the movie's casting them that way, but also this is a uniquely California movie. What is it that our pastor Tim Bailey, he always likes to quote something about California. If you, if you, take the country and you lift it up and you shake it everything that's not nailed down just plummets into california mm-hmm. and so this is a movie about all the kind of eccentric dreamers and weirdos and rejects and loners and outsiders who end up in california and you have one set of them who tried to start a pet cemetery and failed because they just lacked the qualities that it would take to make a good business and then arguably even worse you have this family that successfully runs a pet cemetery for the affluent people of wherever that is in California. And so you see all these sad old couples that loved their pets and poured all this meaning into them. You see the owner of this pet cemetery who seems like a pretty cynical dude that 
takes advantage of it, but he's got this kind of countrified, almost preacher charm, and that's how he portrays himself is as a the pastor of this church of pet religion. Pets pet, are going to go to heaven. Pet will go. Pets will go to heaven. And then you have his two sons who are just this. You couldn't write a better contrast between these two sad characters who have both gone out, tried to make something of their lives, both completely struck out, both kind of slunk back in to the family business and both living these lives of quiet desperation, but handling it very differently. So you've got like the stoner hippie son who plays his music and writes his songs and kind of dreams about me hitting it big as a musician. And then you have the other son who's just ridiculous. This guy that <laughs> tried to make it in the insurance business and maybe did, but for, for personal reasons that are never revealed exactly, flamed out or something. And now only knows how to talk and think in sort of broken Dale Carnegie aphorisms. Yeah, he just has platitudes. He's got like a picture of, it's not Dale Carnegie, it's another guy, but mm -hmm. he's got this self-help guru's picture that he keeps in his office and all his trophies. And he just thinks and talks in these platitudes and it's really sad. So yeah, the movie, I had remembered this movie as being more of a sort of charming, eccentric, like <laughs> people sure are funny kind of, oh, no. but it's more of a, it's more painful than that. And you have this central monologue that kind of splits the two different stories by this old woman that... Morris just puts the camera on. Uh, she, she barely has anything to do with the rest of it, but he just lets her talk. And as Ebert says in his review, Faulkner wishes he could write that monologue. Like it's just this country fried monologue where she, she asserts all these things, contradicts every one of them by the end of the thing, is desperately self-aggrandizing, but then also kind of servile. And she's got this son that she's estranged from and his girlfriend and I, I can't even do it justice. You could pull it up on YouTube. She's and, just really alone. Yeah. She's really alone in a trailer park and a camera's on her and he's just hanging her out. Yep. And so she's just keeps talking and she waits for what's next or she'll ask a question and he won't even answer or respond. And so she'll wait a little, a little bit longer and then she'll start to pour out a little bit more of her heart. And then she'll wait, like, what are we doing? And then she'll go some more. And it's really painful and amazing. <laughs> it's an incredible thing. It's quite something. I wonder. sick to my stomach. Well, I wonder if you could actually find as many of these people now, because surely in the age of social media. Now everybody understands much better what they're doing. What they're doing when someone puts a camera in their face, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, Ben, you found some context for us on the state, uh, on documentary filmmaking in general. Yeah, I did. I'll be talking about Errol Morris and stuff, but cool. you're going to talk about documentary film. Yeah. Which I'm, is an, it's a surprisingly interesting subject. Yeah, it really is. It really is. So, I yeah, I dug in to the history of it, where it got its start, and found out about a, a bunch of people I'd never heard of, but... I certainly didn't expect to find out about Boleslav Matuszewski. Mm. What? <laughs> Nobody expects Boleslav Matuszewski. <laughs> chief weapons are. <laughs> oh. Having a, law, a big Polish name that I don't know how to pronounce. So I'm sorry about that. He was like Polish. His father was French. He was alive in the late 19th century, the early 20th. And what an interesting guy. So this was a guy who was big into photography 
and he co-founded the French Documentary Photography Museum Association in 1894, and then he got interested in filmmaking. And he's not interested in fiction filmmaking. He's interested in history and education. He thinks he thinks a film is something that can preserve history. He's like, film can preserve history, and we need to preserve film. Like, because we need these records. We need these archives. Cinema can be valuable in the same documentary fashion that photographs are valuable. Wrote two books about cinema in French in 1898. This is the time of the cinematograph. And at the time, it's not looked upon this invention by the Lumiere brothers of the cinematograph. is not... People are not taking it seriously. It's just a gimmick. It's just, just, a, it's just a gimmick. But this guy's like, no, this is serious business. So he, this guy is like filming surgeries. He's filming monarchs so that surgeons can look at these surgeries and like up and coming surgeons can learn about surgeries. He's filming monarchs. He's a royal ph- photographer to Tsar Nicholas II wow. for many years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then, and, uh, get this, he uses the cinematograph to record the official visit of the of the then French president to St. B- Petersburg in 1897, which was controversial and like Otto von Bismarck, the German chancellor, is accusing this French president, Faure, of disrespecting the Russian flag, like not bowing or saluting or something, you know, violating diplomatic protocol. You've done a bad job, Faure. Look, and then this guy's movie, Matazuski's movie, showed that Faure actually did salute or bow or whatever he was supposed to do. So he kind of proved his case right. with his movie of the visit. Here's a quote from Matuszewski. Vitalized photography, which by which he means cinema, right? Vitalized photography has the inimitable quality of authenticity, accuracy, and precision. It is a credible and infallible eyewitness par excellence. <laughs> such photography uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> such, <laughs> such photography is able to control statements. And if living eyewitnesses do not agree on a certain issue, the vitalized photography may bring opponents to terms by silencing the one who is not right, unquote. So he doesn't seem to have any understanding of how cameras lie. That's my takeaway. Mm-hmm. I didn't he read did. his. Yeah, well, why, why would he? Right. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, we hadn't but it, begun to figure out how to lie with a camera yet. Barely figured out how they I work, g- let alone. I guess not, but it is amazing. Living in this age of fake news and stuff, it's amazing to so read a statement like that. <laughs> yeah. It's so so this guy, this guy already has the idea of what film should be and could be. And he has a um he has kind of a spiritual air in one of the fathers of modern documentary film, John Grierson, who's a Scottish guy. And he he coined or he's said to have coined the word documentary as like a noun. So he was writing a review of another documentary movie. They weren't called that yet, and he said, what did he say? He said this film has documentary value. And apparently that, from that point on, people began using the word documentary as a noun. Anyway, it's a little unclear. He was actually, he was writing about a documentary by another famous guy we'll come back to, Robert Flaherty, uh, and his movie Moana. Not that Moana. A different Moana. A 1926 Moana. Um, <clears throat> so Grierson was also totally uninterested in fiction, right, with, with movies. He called Hollywood producers dope peddler. He was, you guys are just, are just feeding people drugs. Like, your stories are, are worthless. They have no nutritional value. What he wanted to do was to raise social awareness and achieve political goals. That's what he thought documentary film was. That's what he thought film was for. And so this is a quote from him. I look on cinema as a pulpit and use it as a propagandist, unquote. 
So there you go. That's John Grierson. He also called the documentary, this is a kind of a famous definition, quote, a creative treatment of actuality, unquote. So just a creative way of portraying facts. He spent a lot of time working for various government agencies. Worked for the British, the EMB, the Empire Marketing Board, which, guess what? It's a British thing that marketed the British Empire and its goods. And so it, it was meant to, to promote British trade and unity. He made this movie called Drifters. And a lot of this stuff you can find on YouTube for free. Maybe not in good quality, but you can find it. Drifters, uh, I think, was his first. It's about herring fishermen in the North Sea. It gives you a, It's a silent movie. It gives you a look into the dangerous work that these guys are doing. I just want to pause there yeah. and say, just look at the first guy that you talked about who's like, yay, we can document life. And then this <laughs> next guy kind of says that too, but uh-huh. immediately goes to into propaganda business, manipulating yeah. reality. That's right. That, yeah, that's that's amazing. And very a very natural transition. Yeah, I mean, I'm I mean, sure nobody even thought about it all that much. It's no. Just... Who's going to be paying you to capture reality? <laughs> right. <laughs> because that might influence the reality that you edit together. And that's why I, I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead. Can I just say, I know this is a contrarian opinion, but I hate documentaries. You hate documentaries? I just hate them. Yeah, you can say that. Just saying. I... For the very reason that they pretend to tell the truth and they never do. And a movie isn't doing that. That's all. Sorry, we, go we ahead. Sh- we should come back to that. I'm, I think yeah, no, I'm, no, I'm glad you said one, that. That's one of the reasons I wanted to do this episode because I thought we could have this discussion to be because yeah. people like the kind of the chattering class and even and people that we know, you know, our friends that are chattering class adjacent, they love documentaries. It's the most fun. Documentaries. Why, why would you watch? Your average intelligent white collar person likes documentaries just about as much as anything. Well, can I? I mean, I wouldn't interject something now. I have this book of primary source historical accounts just selected from across the gamut of the last couple of millennia. So, starting in like ancient Greece and whatever you have these. Here's part of what's his name? Thucydides' account of the Peloponnesian War. Here's a part yeah. of this. Here's a part yeah. of that. Famous stuff. And this historian, so I think he's an Oxford guy. Anyway, he's British. I don't remember his name. He's pretty famous. So he edits the book. And I remember reading in his preface years ago, oh, I'm looking forward to the day when nonfiction accounts can replace fiction because fiction is just made up garbage, but these accounts are the truth. So this guy, and that, and I was always like, what an idiot. That kind of stuff is, that that, that perspective is very foolish. Yeah. Um, there, anyway, but just, so I'm going to go back to Grierson and, and Drifters and Herring. He's going to promote these, these brave men doing this hard work to get herring, which people aren't aware of, how dangerous it is. Okay, so he does that. This is a British commodity, our herring, you should buy it. He makes other films for them. He produces a lot of movies. He, he, he goes to work for the British post office. He makes a 10-minute movie called Grant and Trawler, which is a 10-minute film with sound about a fishing boat. And it's just, it's, it's, there's no score. But it's just the sound of guys doing things. And it's kind of cool. It's kind of like a little win to, window into a world that's gone. And then he, there's a 10-minute film about called The Private Life of Gannets, which is about the bird, the gannet. And if you watch it, you'll feel like right at home. Like, oh yeah, I've seen National Geographic before. I know exactly what this is. This is one of those nature movies with really cool camera work and a voiceover, a narrator, and a score, a sweeping score. It's going to tell me about these birds. Know exactly what this is. Well, this guy kind of originated some of that stuff. So The Private Life of Gannets won an Academy Award in 1937. Just a 10-minute movie. You can see it on YouTube. Grierson moved to Canada, worked for the National Film Board there, made propaganda movies for World War II. And now, it, this is, I thought this was super 
interesting. So remember, Grierson's, Gr- Grierson wants to change reality with his movies, affect social and political change. So there was some Canadian raid against the Germans and Canadian prisoners were taken. And on Hitler's personal order, these prisoners were chained hand and foot. So Grierson told the National Film Board, hey, what you guys need to do is make a movie about how the German POWs that we have here are being treated in Canada. So they had a director make a movie showing how well-treated these guys were. Soccer teams, they're eating well. They have good relationships with their guards. There's, there's actually a much more recent Canadian documentary about these guys called The Enemy Within, because it was a real thing, like these crazy, well-treated German POWs, apparently. Anyway, so this was, this was a short movie. One copy was made. They, it, they sent it to the Swiss Red Cross, who deliberately let it fall into German hands. And later, apparently, Grierson learned that Hitler saw it himself, and he ordered that the Canadian prisoners of war be unchained. So he's like, yeah, we can change reality with movies. That's what he wants to do. He did a lot more life, a lot more filmmaking and film production back in the British Isles. He died in 1972. But let me go back to Robert Flaherty, whose movie Moana Grierson was reviewing at one point. He was an American filmmaker. He made the famous movie Nanak of the North. Which I've seen. Which you've seen. Yeah, again, YouTube. The first feature-length documentary that was financially successful. Then he made Moana and Man of Aaron and a bunch of other things. So Nanak of the North is interesting because because it has a big element of what's termed docufiction. So docufiction is like... um, I, I want to make, Jake, I want to make a movie about what it's like to be a dad with kids on travel sports teams. And, but you know what? It's been some years since you've done that. So here's what we're going to do. We are going to, we're going to make you kind of more or less play yourself and go with this travel sports team that doesn't have your kids on it. And we're going to act like these two kids are your kids and like you're their dad. And we're just going to let you kind of be the way that you would have been in that situation. And we're going to play it out. So that's docufiction. And and you can do a lot of things with that, and you can kind of have stuff that has actual documentary elements. Well, this is a real team playing baseball, but Jake's not really who Jake is, and those aren't his kids. And so there's a fictionalized... Nothing's really real. And... Right, right. But on the other hand, you are actually capturing something true, right? Yeah. In a you're, way. You're capturing the kids playing and what I want to imagine myself to have been like. That's right. That's interesting. And what I want you to think yeah. that I was like. You watch yes. Nanak of the North and I... you watch like, yeah. and you're like, oh, okay. So that's not really Nanak's wife. Those aren't really his kids. Yeah. And probably they already wounded that seal so that we could get a cool shot of capturing. But now I'm seeing the way that they actually strip and kill a seal. Uh, that's a fake example. But it's, sure. it's that kind of thing. It's like they're accidentally getting all kinds of reality or would you say accidentally, but also the narrative that it's built around is yeah. fake. So, but, yeah. so I don't think we said, but Nan- Nanak of the North is about an Inuit, an Eskimo, an Eskimo yeah. an Inuit. Yeah. And, and, and Robert Flaherty found this guy who was a famous hunter, not named Nanak. He renamed him because he was like, Alakarialak, that's not going to play. It's going to be Nanak. <laughs> Alakarialak actually is the guy's name. So, so Nanak and these two women are going to play your wives. And fun fact, they were actually the American Robert Flaherty's common-law wives <laughs> who he left behind. One of them he had a kid with, but he just kind of forgot about it. So Robert Flaherty, gross guy, getting in deep with the natives and taking advantage of them for sexual and artistic purposes on my read. And so he gets Nanak and 
fake wives and fake kids and has him go hunting stuff, seals, walrus. And he's like, no, no, no. Don't use a gun. Pretend that you've never seen all this Western civilization stuff. You're going to hunt the seal like your ancestors used to do 30 years ago. Use a spear, a harpoon. So Nick's like, oh, okay. And so what you have is a sort of an, an imaginative recreation of Inuit ways of doing things. <laughs> and so you've got all these elements. One, one you've, you, you've got, you actually are capturing harsh conditions and dangerous things. Um, I don't think, from what I understand, I didn't watch the whole thing, Nathan. Maybe you have a better read. I, it didn't seem like it was, it was so staged as to be not actually No, they're something. really in the north. It's really cold. Yeah. You're really seeing them interact with animals and... Yeah. Try to haul in a seal. There's a lot that is very fascinating in a strictly documentary sense in, sure. in the movie. Sure. And so, so that's Nanook. I mean, it's fake reality, but it's simulated somewhat accurately, but how accurately? And, and also, another question to ask with Nanook is that people understand that this was simulated, that it was fake, that it was docufiction, not just documentary. No. Robert Flaherty is going to say in the title cards at the start of the movie, this is Nanak and these are his wives. And this, he's just going to present it all as pure fact. That's what he's going to do. It, and, and when he makes Moana, or Moana, it's going to be kind of the same thing. He's going to go to Samoa and get natives to reenact tribal rituals and parts of native life. Oh, yeah, I know that, you, that women aren't topless now, but I want you to be topless for this movie because we're going to be like authentic like you were. And I want you to do these dances and rituals. And... Uh, anyway, that's it. And by the way, that's a subgenre of docufiction called ethnofiction. Well, because it's it, natives it, playing fictional roles. It's <laughs> also worth saying people have done the same thing in literature. I mean, there are great explorers and people who wanted to hype the exoticism of the Orient or of whatever who wanted a better story. And you know, I mean, you can find a rich strain of what they call Orientalism in 18th century and, and 19th century writings where whether the east offered that kind of exoticism or not they knew it sold like hotcakes and so they're throwing it into their books how can mm-hmm. it's the seven wives doing the dance of the seven veils and you know an actual person from that era or from that place is like what this is we don't do that thing anyway yeah so yeah so i mean so that's kind of that's flarity and his his stuff is really controversial for all the reasons you can imagine Woke colonial reasons, just the fact that he's lying. Questions about whether what you're seeing is, how it's valuable. How, what truth does it tell? What good is it even artistically? Roger Ebert, Roger Ebert loves Nanak of the North. You can go read his four-star review. It's on I mean, his great movies list. Yeah. yeah he's, and he's going to say stuff like, well, when you see a seal hunt in Nanak, you're still actually seeing a seal hunt. Who cares if they would have used guns? You're seeing an actual seal hunt. In the Arctic, this animal's being killed, a dude's struggling to kill it, but they didn't give the script to the seal. That's what Ebert's going to say, which you can see, I think, the strength of that and also ask some questions like, well, now, hold on, Ebert, You're, aren't you playing, aren't you just playing into this a little too much? And so kind of a related category to docufiction, not the same thing, is what you could call, uh, this is a big, giant, flabby category, but docudrama which extends from anything to the kind of reenactments that Errol Morris is going to do in his later documentaries, mm-hmm. where he's going to have people reenact the scene. Every one of us has seen this a million times on Unsolved Mysteries. Right. There's going to be a reenactment. 
It, it, but you can also say that a docudrama is anything based, is anything that's supposed to be like a retelling of a story of reality. Right. So the Elvis movie is a docudrama, if you want to call it that. The, the category is kind of flabby enough or broad enough to accommodate all that stuff. So, yeah, Errol Morris is way downstream mm-hmm. of all of this. But we can ask a lot of questions about what it means, <laughs> what he's capturing, right. how accurate it is. I mean, we already talked about how unnatural he is as an interviewer, like with the old lady just sitting there sort of saying things that would normally invite a conversational response, but Errol Morris isn't going to say anything. The story about the old lady, he has to cut to some footage at one point because his sound, the the old lady says, Oh, I read this. What does she say? She says some truism, like you can't take it with you or something like that. That's not it. But she says, Mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, I remember reading this. (laughs) I think I, I might have it here. And oh yeah, yeah. She says here today, gone tomorrow. Right. And the sound woman had pity on this woman and said, wrong. I mean, just made conversation. And so Morris had to fire her because you have the woman in the middle of this amazing Faulkner-esque monologue and you're going to interrupt it? Just let this woman sit here and reveal herself. But I can talk more about Morris if you're ready for me too. Is there anything? I think so. No, that's... It, it is just, it's the eternal question. Like, it's kind of, oh, what's the time travel conceit? Uh, butterfly theory. Could we actually go back and see dinosaurs? Well, no, because if we went back and saw dinosaurs, we'd be in an environment where we were there. And that wouldn't have, I understand I'm playing into tropes that as creationists we don't believe, but you understand the point I'm making. Can you document something without affecting it? Mm-hmm. And the answer, at least in part, is no. And can the camera capture anything realistically? I mean, can you actually tell the story of who killed JFK or can you just confuse the story of who killed JFK? I mean, that's a loaded example, but- Well, the 20th, I've seen the Zapruder film and right. I've seen- The grassy knoll footage. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, so Errol Morris kind of comes out of the independent filmmaking school- of the 1970s, which we've talked about many times on this podcast. He's Jewish, which is a thing we run into a lot on this podcast. Graduated from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in 1969 with a Bachelor of Arts in History. And then he just kind of bopped around trying to decide what he wanted to do. Went, Tried to get into Oxford and Harvard. Finally talked his way into Princeton, where he was studying history of science, and he said, I had no idea what I was doing. That's not really my my background. He's studying physics. He's not interested in physics. He just he just knows he wants to experience life and he's kind of an intelligent guy, but not with a lot of direction. Anyway, he ends up going to Berkeley. Like I said, anything that's not rooted down ends up in California. And so becomes a doctoral student in philosophy at Berkeley, hates philosophy, just finds it a world of pedants, as he said, and was feeling really bad about it. But there's this thing called the Pacific Film Archive at Berkeley, and it's just this theater that shows films, shows old films, shows new films, shows, you know, like a a well-programmed art theater, basically. And Morris starts going and seeing all the films there, and he decides, this is what I want to do with my life. And there's a whole group of guys that are 
going and seeing all these art films and being influenced by them and then starting to create them. And one of the most famous ones is Werner Herzog, the great German existentialist documentary filmmaker who you could ask all the same questions of his films. Mm-hmm. I think Jake would actually feel pretty good about Herzog's films because Herzog I almost just, watched one the other day before we watched this one. Well, he's so upfront about the fact that he's that he's part of the story that yeah. you might not agree with any of his weird German atheist philosophy, but at least you're like, okay, well, this is a story. This isn't a story about Grizzly Man. This is a story about Werner Herzog watching the footage of Gr- Grizzly Man. You know what I mean? Uh, he's always just a character. The Arctic thing that he did. And even his fictional films are kind of documentaries. They it's have like, a feeling of documentaries. Well, they are almost, it's like, I'm going to dress my friend Klaus Kinski in the clothes of a conquistador, give him the barest conquistador plot to to uh, perform, and then we'll just go down a river and kind of capture what happens. And so it's almost like he's making a documentary about what if Klaus Kinski was dressed as a conquistador. And so it's this really weird merging of fact and fiction. His famous film, I forget what it's even called, but it's where they drag a boat across Fitzcarraldo Fitzcarraldo yeah it's about I haven't seen it's about a guy dragging a boat through the jungle like a giant boat and in order to make this movie Herzog dragged a giant boat through the jungle and all his workers went insane and all the stuff that's in the movie happened (laughs) so is Herzog's just the kind of guy he's like I'm I will do a crazy German art thing and then I'll film it and he's he's the guy if you've ever seen it's all performance Jack Reacher yeah. He's the villain who's like, I escaped from a Russian. He bit off his own fingers. He bit off his own fingers. And you're like, yep, there's a reason that Herzog is playing this villain. Yeah. Like, he's got an element of like, yeah, I'll do it to myself. <laughs> I, I want it on the movie. I'll eat my own fingers if that's what the movie's about. So, yeah, Herzog's this weird, crazy guy. And he just, he loves, he loves film. He loves you don't need a big budget. You need an idea. He's like, he's one of these kinds of guys. And um, he's very compelling. And he's very in my compelling. Opinion. Yeah, I, I like Herzog, actually. I like some of his films. And he's he's certainly a fun person to watch well, his can, interviews and stuff. Can I just interject? I, one thing about Herzog, and actually, I would say Morris, too, though you can convince me that I'm wrong. Well, they both believe in the truth, actually. Mm-hmm. I don't know that they would claim that they can find the truth or show it to you in a documentary film exactly. But they also do believe that there's realities that they're getting at. Although Morris, Morris is responsible, as you'll talk about, for a movie that got someone out of jail. Yeah, well, I'll just go ahead and give, here's what Morris would say if he was sitting here talking to Jake. And I think Jake, if Jake saw him say it, Jake would at least believe that Morris believed it. And Jake might not agree with it, but he would believe that Morris isn't being disingenuous. What he would say is... He would say, you know, everybody attacked me for making fun and taking advantage of these people and making them look absurd and revealing their deep darkness in this film. And they asked me, like, are you mocking these people? And eventually I started to say, yes, I'm mocking those people because I was so tired of the question that I would just say, yes, I took advantage of all these people and I mocked them and I made them look absurd and I revealed all this. And then, but then what he would say is, in actuality, yeah, sure. I discovered the most absurd things about all these people, but you know who's the most absurd person is me. And we're all ridiculous and we're all desperate. And we also want much want our lives to have value and we're all really scared that they don't. And so what you're accusing me of is placing myself on a pedestal over these people and I do not. I think I'm just as ridiculous as they are. I just 
assert the right to show them. But we're all in the same boat. I don't think I'm any better than any of these people. And you might not like that philosophy. You might not even respect that philosophy. But like I said, I think I think he's it's, he's coming from a genuine place. And I think he has genuine affection for the people in this movie and finds their stories moving. And I mean, there's some, we could argue that that's even more damning somehow, but, and, and maybe that's what we will argue, but he wants to find the truth about the human condition. And he thinks he sort of has in gates of heaven. What's a desperate existential truth that he's come to. Um, but anyway, to, just to finish his story, he, Decided he was going, it ties back to Psycho, actually. He just, he got a few thousand dollars and decided to make a documentary about Ed Gein, the inspiration for Norman Bates. There's a pretty interesting story. This will tell you something about both Morris and Herzog, but especially Herzog, that they were going to dig, yeah. they, were, they were going to dig up uh, Ed Gein's mother's <laughs> grave together just to find out whether he had stolen that corpse as they suspected that he had. You know, let's see how how much of a Norman Bates this guy really was. Morris chickened out and didn't show up, but Herzog arrived at the grave in the middle of the night with his shovel. Where is Morris? That's <laughs> which is so amazing. so Herzog and so Morris. But yeah, so Morris, Morris actually worked on films with Herzog helped him shoot a film called Herzog called Strozek and Herzog lended him money to go and uh make a film in Vernon Florida which eventually became I forget what the name of Vernon, it. Yeah, Florida. Vernon Florida that's right but famously Herzog said if you ever complete this film about the pet cemeteries I will eat my shoe and so Herzog believed in him Herzog motivated him spurred him on said you do not need any money you just need an idea and a desire to find the truth about people and you can make a movie you don't have to go through the studio system and so morris was inspired to do exactly that he heard about this he read in the paper we see the headline in the movie this this thing about 450 dead pets going to napa valley and borrowed some money from his friends and family and went and shot in 1977. Total budget, $125,000, which even then was absolutely nothing. And um, kept firing his cinematographers, firing his sound people because they did not understand the style. They did not, he just wanted the camera to just be this observer. We're not going to like bring extra flash to this. We just want to sit people down. We want to have them look. And we're going to get these kind of proscenium like we're just sitting there with them kind of thing and cinematographers also deadpan it's very deadpan yeah. and cinematographers did not understand that that's what he wanted and thought it was stupid and the movie was released without that much fanfare he didn't have a big studio apparatus behind him to i think uh, there was a studio that picked it up but it wasn't the kind of thing that was going to catch on he does owe roger ebert and siskel his career those guys were in a way that we can't understand now powerful figures in culture at the time they could make or break a movie there's no critic that has anywhere near the power that they had and so when they decided that they liked something and wanted to champion something they could really bring it into the mainstream and so they mm. did that with a movie called hoop dreams which is a very famous documentary about kids playing basketball i don't not an interesting subject to me so i've never really looked into it but it's supposed to be one of the great documentaries and Maybe one day we'll do it. I don't know. They, they, there's all. I mean, you can. There's a long list of movies that wouldn't have caught on if Siskel and Ebert didn't like them. But Siskel and Ebert actually 
reviewed the film three times just to make sure the people that watched our TV show would hear about it and then reviewed it again on their best of the year list. And so they just like championed this thing. And Ebert, it was when when he was asked later in life to name the top 10 films of all time. He had this film on there. He said it was mysterious and funny and got at the truth of life. And so this movie caught on and became kind of one of the defining art films, if you want, of of its time. And Werner Herzog did, in fact, eat his shoe. He boiled it up and ate it because Herzog or because Morris had finished his film. And there's a documentary you can watch called Werner Herzog Eats His Shoe. How real is it? Did they change the shoe eating by documenting it? I don't know. But Earl Morris goes on to an illustrious career as a documentarian. He's done a lot of good movies. Thin Blue Line is famous as one of the first sort of true crime documentaries. And like you alluded Mm -hmm. to earlier, it actually very much and very intentionally changed the narrative. Uh, Very much the forerunner of whatever the podcast is that everybody loved, a serial, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And a whole genre, obviously, of these kinds of things. He did A Brief History of Time, which is the story of What's his face? The guy in the wheelchair, Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking. He did Mr. Death about a guy, the the guy that flipped the switch on an electrical chair. And his style has kind of changed over the years. He's much more sort of fast and frenetic and MTV and not as deadpan, much more obvious in the way that he manipulates these stories now. I mean, Gates of Heaven, if you know cinema and you know storytelling and you know human nature, you can see all the ways that he's manipulating the story, but it doesn't look like he's manipulating the story. It's very deadpan, like we said. But these later films are are much more not like that. Many of them are things we wouldn't have any problem with because they actually are going after once he became had enough clout, he could actually do interviews with, you know, famous people. And so what is it called? The Fog of War, about the life of Robert S. McNamara, who was the U.S. Secretary of Defense for several years under Bush and um, was just part of all that world, is a good documentary about, I don't know, the kind of conservative military-industrial complex and stuff like that. He did one that I haven't seen but that I'm interested in seeing called American Dharma with Steve Bannon, where he just sat there and use his technique on Bannon and let Bannon tell the story that Bannon wanted to tell. And liberals really turned against Morris when he released that documentary because they said, why didn't you ask all the difficult questions that you should have asked? Why why didn't you hold Bannon's feet to the fire? And Morris is just like, that's never been, I don't hold anyone's feet to the fire. I just let them, I just get them talking and see what they want, see what they want to reveal about themselves and what they accidentally reveal about themselves if they talk long enough. He's pretty famous for using a technique that involves reflections on glass such that the camera can actually make direct eye contact with the person so that they are looking right into the camera and talking to you, even though that's not what they what they felt like they were doing when you shot. Obviously, if you want someone to be comfortable when you're filming them, you don't just want them to be staring down the barrel of a camera. But Morris will have reflections such that's what the camera is capturing but actually they're just having a conversation with him in the moment Mm -hmm. and i think that's all we really need to say about him he's interesting i mean he's a liberal guy yeah very 
But it's clear he does believe in truth. If you go, you can find him arguing that truth is real, Mm -hmm. that it's not relative, that you can find the truth. And so he actually does believe in the documentary format as a way of finding the truth, even though I don't think he's simple-minded about it. But clearly, he wanted to find the truth of what happened to the guy accused of or convicted of murder in Thin Blue Line. Right. Well, and you can say that Gates of Heaven is manipulative. You can say that he never should have exposed the truth about these people, but he does uncover a lot about these people, much more than they mean to give him. Yes. And that is... That's why... That's why it's that's why it feels so mean. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not because he's bad at his job though. No, it's because he's really good at it and it just feels really mean. Or at least it did when I watched it. I um, have a I don't have much of a stomach for that kind of thing. You you like to reference a documentary, what's it called about King of King, Kong. King of Kong. It's 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 very similar. It's clearly taking its cues from this movie. And it's about a tournament, a champ, a King Kong arcade game. It's not even a tournament. It's about this dude whose whole identity is bound up in having the like Guinness World Record for, you know, King Kong and the the race to beat him and then the ability to can he make a comeback. It's, it's it kind of fall, you have like a bad guy and a good guy. It kind of makes it it almost follows the trajectory of a sports movie of like the guy that's so proud of himself he sits at the king he's the pinnacle of king kong players and then you have the upstart that's you know it's like rocky and apollo or something like that only it's this ridiculous conceit and they they take it enormously seriously and and it's very comical because of how seriously they take it and i had to turn that one off because i was just i just felt so awkward about i i don't know what it is what those empathy triggers are but I'd probably feel the same way now. I didn't, at the time, I just sort of, maybe I was mean enough to think, well, these guys get are getting what they deserve here. Whereas with with this viewing of this movie, which I had not seen before, at first I, you know, I was laughing and I thought, oh man, this guy is something. Mm-hmm. The way he cuts things together was hilarious. Like really well done. I think I said out loud while we were watching it, that he's a genius early on. And then it just kept getting more sour and sour to me. Right. As we went for that reason. Well, you know, it's interesting. I could go character by character and there's one, like the old lady, it is a amazing section, but I do feel like she's basically taken advantage of the guy that owns the pets, the second pet cemetery. He seems like such an evil man. Yeah. You don't feel too bad. That I don't feel bad. I'm like, Oh, they just got, they got him and he deserved it. And maybe that's unfair of me to feel like I can just make those judgments that easy. Maybe they wanted him to be the bad guy of the movie, and so they cut things a certain way. I don't know. but Well, but also, as Morris goes, I don't know. I I felt this less this time, but whenever, however long ago I saw this movie at first, I remember feeling the loneliness just grow and grow like a heavy weight. The loneliness of all these people, this family, these sons. Well, he never, I mean, part of how he tells the story is he he. Never has anybody together. So yeah. every single shot is one person. Or a couple. In or, some cases. or a couple. There are a couple of couples. But he never puts the quote unquote protagonists together, which is no choice. So yeah. the family is always isolated. You get one person alone in a completely different context than anybody else telling their story as if they're the only person alive into the void. 
they're not having a conversation with anybody. There's no dialogue. They are just alone in a room talking about themselves. It almost feels it, like in Shakespeare, Shakespearean soliloquy or something like Hamlet just wanders onto the stage and bears his soul. And, and, and then he leaves. And then he leaves. And then what's her face? Wanders on. And Ophelia. Bears, yeah, Ophelia wanders on, bears yeah. her soul. And then she leaves. And then and the whole thing is everybody feels, is made to feel, is shown to feel so isolated. Even where they're shot, like there's not like, be a lot of landscape around them, or a they're going to be out alone in the country. They're going to be alone in a room to by themselves. They're going to be alone wherever they're at. There's not even going to be any like background existence of any other person, any evidence of anybody else's existence. Like every single shot, every single interview is that way. Right. The one son that's desperate that's come back has a family. He has a wife and kids. He talks about him, but we don't see them. But they them. don't exist. We don't get to see them together. We don't get mm-hmm. to see anything like that. It's just him. And that is a fantastic example of how you can impose narrative structure without seeming to oppose any narrative structure. There's no music. There's nothing like right. outwardly manipulative that you'd see. But just the way the shots are composed and just the way that you cut from one story to another tells you so much. And you have no idea whether it's fair to these people. And you have no idea what was cut what was included, what was not included. I mean, obviously, you know, what was included, but I mean, you, you have no idea what what was said that he decided didn't fit the narrative that he was telling. I think part of the reason I hate documentaries, and I I don't know that that's overstatement. I mean, there are documentaries that I, I could probably think of that I like, but I part of what I don't like is just the degree to which the... I, I think what I don't like is the amount of work I have to do and the impossibility of it. It just always feels impossible to me. Like Different yeah. than with a book about the history of something similar? No. Not? Not very different than a book, not a history book. I don't read history for the same kinds of reasons. But I do think that a history book is different. I mean, there are things that you can know about an author and about his perspective. I don't know. Well, a history book a history book does not answer any more questions than a documentary film does, but it also doesn't raise as many questions as a documentary film does. Right. History book you know you're just getting the author this one author's perspective. You understand it to be that. You can wonder well, and about And it's got enough history as a genre. Like if you're reading a biography, there are certain ways that you tell a biography, right? Yeah. And so you know what you're in, even in that sense, kind of. And, and there's like, other sources you can go and check, actually. Right. And it's it's easier for you to see the author at work in a weird way. So you can actually just, you can filter better. The example I always think of is I started one time Eric McTaxes, I think that's his name, yeah. biography of Luther. And he wants to portray Martin Luther as coming from this really borderline abusive home. And it's really hard to tell as you're reading it is like, okay, does this guy just not like spanking? Maybe. And especially not the spanking from that era. And okay, maybe none of us like the spanking from that era, but also whatever, times change, and it's Mm -hmm. really not all that different than what I believe to be God-ordained and biblical. Or was Luther's dad a little much? Or was Luther's dad abusive? It's, It's really hard to tell based just on... That Metaxas book. is Metaxas is very sloppy. Yeah, he's yeah. 
Well, and in, in that particular example, maybe a little bit intentional in the way he wants to slant things. But I only have to deal with one relationship, and that's my relationship with Metaxas. That's right. Where uh, and you could say I only have to deal with one relationship in this movie, and it's Morris and what he. But all, but also you have to deal with your relationship with the camera and your relationship with the music and your relationship with the way things are cut together. There's just more variables. It to me just feels very like you have to be so, or I feel the pressure. Like maybe I, there are certain documentaries that are just you treat them like a movie. Well, yeah, you're not talking about Planet Earth right now. I mean, yeah, exactly. I feel the pressure of, did that fish really swim through that? <laughs> Who cares? Yeah. It's pretty. Yeah. That's what you're watching it for. And you put on your evolution and climate change and people are bad filters. Right. Big deal, right? Mm -hmm. Who cares? But anything else that's purporting to be a serious documentary has so much. I just don't, I just don't, I don't, I can't enjoy it. Well, you also have the more basic problem, putting aside the truth for a second, you have the problem of, let, let's say that we got the facts accurately here. Do I need to be entertained by all these people's pain? I mean, it's the, it's, right. it's the classic true crime problem. You know, I'll watch something and then you just, and I don't like true crime, but you one watches something and then one thinks to oneself, that person was brutally murdered and they were in pain and they were feeling really bad when that happened. And I wasn't empathizing with any of that. I was, I was just being like, entertained by it. Huh, I wonder if he had the knife or didn't have the And you could say the same thing about Gates of Heaven. Like you have a bunch of people. In that sense, it feels almost degrading, right? right? Because it's like, this is, these are real people. They have real lives. They have real people that love them and real people that they love. And they have become, they have been made to be a spectacle for my entertainment. Their deepest, darkest secrets are made to be a spectacle for my entertainment. Their loneliness, their pain, their foolishness, it's all a spectacle for my entertainment. And I'm supposed to feel good because we all just kind of suck in our own special way. And that's the truth we're getting at. To me, that feels broken and wrong. And I don't, en I don't enjoy it. I don't enjoy having to deal with the juxtapositions of things like cameras and everything else and all the things that aren't like, it's just like, it's it, to me, it feels like oppressively overwhelming. There's so much going on and it feels impossible to get at what, like when we watched it, like I fell asleep, but I don't think I would, <laughs> I think that part of it was like almost it. I was tired. It was the end of the day, but I think some of it was just like, it was so tiresome to me. Mm -hmm. Like it was emotionally tiresome that I had, a, I just had a hard time with it. Well, it also strikes me that a detective might really hate watching law and order because he does it for a living. And also now he has to do it for a live, do it for entertainment, but with a bunch of camera angles and music and stuff clouding the issue. And a large part of your job as pastor is to delve into who people are and what motivates people and all that sort of thing. And yeah, I, th I think there is something to that perhaps, you know, if I can analyze you for a second. Sure. Uh, in, Please do. In your- in Maybe your, make some space for people to not yeah. feel they can't watch documentaries because I hate them so much. Well, in your, I think, I think <laughs> your visceral hatred of all the extra variables, I think, might yeah. come out of that. Because you're like, I have to do this all the time, yeah. and there's already way too many variables, and it's already really hard. And you're going to make me do this for entertainment and then add 
40 extra variables how dare and so you have like you can hear it in jake's voice this kind of how dare you <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not, not everybody is going to approach it that way i think you have to ask hard questions about a movie like this i i, I think if you just watch especially if you just watch true crime and just watch it as entertainment i think that's pretty gross but then there are good true crime there are things that in a compassionate way, tell a story that deserves to be told. And then you run the gamut all the way to things that are just pure, grisly exploitation. And so it's, yeah. you can't just lump everything all together yeah. like that. Um, I, think I, I think I watched this movie first when I was a teenager. And watching it again now, I feel much more like Jake. I think I still enjoyed it more than Jake did or... <laughs> it, would be, it would be hard not to It'd be hard not yeah. to i don't know what did you think of it ben i mean I, I still have a part of me that early on i was getting some kicks out of it there's some really really funny it's stuff pretty hilarious and that dude at the, the rendering plant the dude. rendering plant, <laughs> he is like bill murray yeah like you just i can, i could not stop <laughs> casting bill murray but in, bill murray in, minus in, the self-awareness like yeah but it's but but you just like you okay it when when what's his face makes this movie and casts Bill Murray. Mm -hmm. This is a hilarious, wonderful, you know, uh, what's his face? Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, Royal Tenenbaums. Oh, Wes uh, Anderson. Yeah. Wes yeah. Anderson makes this movie and casts Bill Murray as the, as that guy. Then it's going to be, be great. It's going to be something to see. Well, that part of the movie but, is hilarious. What he what Morris does is, is brilliant. You can see he he cuts between this guy who's so sad and so sincere in his desire to see these little pets sent from heaven buried, and then he keeps cutting to this guy's arch nemesis, the owner or the this official that works for the rendering plant, and the guy that works for the rendering plant loves working for the rendering plant. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like this is a valuable service. Right? <laughs> we just burn up. And melt down all the dead pets, dead animals, and people don't want to know what we do here, and we have to lie about it. And yeah, and he has all we these told stories. There's this one time it was an elephant. We just told people we buried the elephant. We didn't bury the elephant. <laughs> we <laughs> rendered that. People don't want to know. Jumbo came to us. <laughs> <this guy. laughs> he gets a real kick out oh. of his, his story being put out there. Right. And, and Morris knows exactly when to cut from the sincere guy to, to this. To, well, it's actually two sincere guys. But yeah, that, but it's, oh, it's really man. funny. It's, it's really, really funny. It's really funny. And I don't feel that bad about that. I, it really no, is the later I sections. Either, with yeah. the, it's that old lady, and then it's this. All the people. It's the family, it's that old lady, and it's all the people talking about Ringo the pet, you know. Yeah, but I am glad to have that documented. I mean, there it's just like... There are things about it that are like... These kooky, eccentric I, old people with money who don't have kids or have a well, strange relationship. And the dude with, just sitting there talking, he's the owner of the thing saying, well, what happened is birth control and... That's right. Uh, Women need something to to hold and to pet and to love on, and so they get a dog or they get a cat mm -hmm. because they're going to work, and it's not a one income family; it's a two income family, and they're on birth control. But she still got to have something to pet and to hold and to love on, and so they get a pet. And then now that the grandparents will normally that would be filled up by having grandbabies to love and care for and nurture and coddle, but the they don't exist, and so they get a pet. And now we've tripled the number of pets right. and to these people they're not having babies and grandbabies so this is what they got and this is nature abhors a vacuum 
And so, of course, mm-hmm. you're going to treat them like they're children and feel like they're children. And we're just going to tell them they've got souls. And, of course, they'll be in heaven and build a chapel for them in a cemetery and take all their money. And it's evil and sinister, but, I mean, just to have somebody say right. that out loud in black and white yeah, in a stark way in 19... 19- 68 or 72. 77, I think was when they played. 77. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's something. Well, to see all these sad middle-aged people who obviously either don't have kids or have a strange relationship with their kids and the amount of meaning that they pour into their pets. I mean, it's a prophetic movie in some ways. It certainly describes a lot about our society today without being too heavy-handed about it. But uh, all these people... If pro- keep hitting LA, San Francisco, and Seattle, right, is like... Three places that we're we don't movie? actually we don't actually go to Seattle, but they keep talking about like when they're going to franchise. And right. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. It's like that's that, going to be place number one. It's yeah. that whole culture. I mean, Napa Valley is like Wine Valley. It's like all those. It's where Francis Ford Coppola went to have a vineyard after he made his money with The Godfather and Apocalypse Now and all that. And then the way that these people who have buried just buried their pets when they're being interviewed generally the way that they use these little dogs and cats to try and process life, death, and the afterlife, and God, and... Yeah, I I think, I don't know. It just, it captures so much about the truth of the world and people. I don't know. It's it's like there's there's more to it than... I would say overall, they I don't put, think... It's not cynical. They put dog treats in a, crisp, in a, in a box and wrapped it up in paper and... Then we're so amazed that the dog knew which present was it's, his it's, and yeah, it's, went to it and opened it up and tore into it as if he knew, as if he had heard them talking and understood. Yeah, like, I mean, or he's a dog and he can smell the treats I, in the box. It, per se, there's plenty of things that feel mean, but there's also just stuff that feels like this is how people talk and how people. This are. Is who, yeah, this it, is it just, just who it just we are. It just is. Yeah. It's like we can all think of family members who are like this. I, I don't even, I mean, I don't even mind the strategy of the movie here. I feel like, here, I'll defend the strategy of the movie. Put everyone alone. Mm. Don't let you, don't don't see them at their best. Because if we see them at their best, we're not going to, if we see them with other people, they're not going to say what they really think or feel. Yeah, we They're going to s- say what those other people want them to hear, won't want to hear them say. I mean, I know that's obvious, but it does, you can see why he's doing it. You can see, and you can see what he gets out of it. Well, I mean, look, I every time we sit down to podcast, we are negotiating the space between who we actually are, who we want to be, who people that listen to us need us to be. <laughs> and I especially negotiate. I want people to see ourselves be, because I edit yeah. these things, so I yeah. have enormous an enormous amount of power as far as who do I think Jake is, who do I think Ben is, and then who who do I think, and I have to make decisions. And I have made decisions, and hopefully they're decisions that you guys like. I'm sure you haven't liked every one of them. But that um, doesn't make us liars. Yeah. Fundamentally, it just means that you always know and tell the truth subjectively. Right. And that's built into reality. Right. And it doesn't mean we don't have a connection with the truth, just because we frame it a certain way. Right. That's not what it means. And you guys understand You guys understand the contract that you're signing when you become part of this yeah. podcast, and you trust me, and I trust you, and we all trust each other. And we have years now of trust that's been built up by making mistakes by having arguments by pushing each other's buttons by mm-hmm. yeah. all this kind of stuff so and you you as a listener 
understand that on some level, right? You understand that you're getting a presentation. Right. It's performative. If you were to sit in a room with us, we might not talk the same way. Right. Mm -hmm. We might not have as strong opinions. Or, or we might have them, but we might not present them to you right. in the same way. We might be willing to give more, but we understand as we record this, part of our job is not just to inform or challenge or express the fullness of our own opinions, mm. uh, but it's to entertain, it's to make you think, it's to give you something that's enjoyable, it's to let you in a window, a little window into our our friendship and our relationship and how we how healthy Christian brothers argue and fight and think about things and challenge each other to think about things. Right. And you, we know even in this room when we're holding back, when we're holding back from each other, when we're protecting each other, when we're conceding to somebody's strong opinion, when we're bending our own opinion to somebody else's strong opinion, like th this is all part of the dance. I came out of the gate on this hot Mm -hmm. If I hadn't, this whole discussion might have gone completely differently. But there are elements in any uh, movie discussion or book discussion where oh, we touched a nerve or, oh, something's personal here. And that's part of the dance that we're dancing. And, and we don't get to have that exchange with you as a listener in the same exact way. Mm-hmm. Right, we may be dancing all over your nerves. We may be touching all your buttons. Yeah, we you bring your, no your own idea, subjective understanding right? of the truth. Which yeah. is why, if you were across the table from us at lunch talking about the same movie, the conversation might go incredibly differently. But we hope that you're able to come to anything like this and be improved by it, and have the equanimity to say, "Okay, this is worth thinking about. This helped me think about this more critically. This helped me think about this more biblically. This helped me engage whatever I think." Jake's an idiot. Who took? Who had no business hating this documentary or hating documentaries as much as he does? I will walk away being more critical of the documentaries that I watch moving forward and mm -hmm. have a have an eye mm -hmm. toward that. You know, that's what we want. That's what the goal is. But you, uh, the whole point of my little monologue riff here is you're already engaged in a sort of performative documentary experience, right? Because the mics are rolling. Nothing is exactly as it would be if the mics were not. Right. And because there's an editor's button, because Nathan can cut, paste, pull out ums and ahs and hesitations, and you're getting a presentation. Right. Yeah, and we, and we work to and do that. And there's truth with, in it. And there's truth. And we work and to do it. And there may be more truth in it for it having been edited. Right. Than not. Yeah. But right. Right. From our perspective as guys, as friends and as performers, we're trying to do what we do with more integrity and honesty as we do it. Right. And we learn better how to navigate each other's strong opinions and nerves and stuff, hopefully. Yeah. And, and I think we have. And then Nathan as an editor is trying to figure out, well, what's going to be helpful? What's not helpful? But the reality and, always is that the more someone bears the soul, the better a product I have. It's better if we know why Jake has such a visceral hatred of this. It's better if we know what weakness Ben is bringing that's making him not like this movie. It's better if we know the sin that it, now it may not always be better in terms of our ongoing relationships. It may not always be better in terms of what's private, what's good for people to know. There may be any number of considerations that make me choose the second best 
for any given podcast because I just don't want Jake or Ben or myself to reveal that. It's not something that our audience needs to know. It's actually something that they need to not know. But I'm always negotiating that space, and it would be a lie for me to say I'm not always negotiating it with the desire to get as much of who we actually are in there because that's just that's the business that we're in, and that's the product that we're creating. And so if I'm Errol Morris, it's like, yes, I I want to be fair to these people, but I also want to put them in the position where they'll reveal as much as possible. I mean, that's that's what we're doing. We're talking about who these people are and what motivates them, and that's the that's the interest that we're going for. In 1977, what these people don't understand is that they don't have to keep talking because there's silence. Right. They don't have to reveal and bear their soul for somebody, or and they don't have to trust the person on the other side of the camera to make them look good. But if they've only ever seen Mike Wallace interviews on NBC or whatever back when we could trust, or we at least thought we could trust the media, they're going to have a different take. I mean, I, I will say, entirely apart from all these considerations, I think Morris made a great movie. I'd like to think that these people... But the measure of a great movie is a movie that makes you think and makes you have conversations about truth and reality. Right. And this is one. I mean, the, the, and these people are, it's good. I'm glad that they're documented. Truth, reality, human nature, and the human condition. Yeah. The dude successfully made a conversation piece. I think about the son, the the son with all the self-help stuff, the Dale Carnegie son. He's the one that I actually feel the most bad for. It's like the old lady, her life is sad, but she didn't really have anything to lose. What's it going to cost her to be screwed over by this movie, even if that's what it was? But the son who so desperate, I can imagine being that guy accidentally exposing all my weaknesses and insecurities to a camera and then seeing the film, the finished film, and just being horrified to realize, A, who I was, and B, what I'd revealed. Well, I mean, back to what Jake was saying about why he hates this stuff. It, you just, you're like, oh man, these people need pastors. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they need someone to love them. Yep. Help them know themselves in a way that's not going to destroy them. <laughs> right. It is just and, like... And Errol Morris is not that. No. And no. has no intention of being that. He no, just wants to not. find the artistic sort of view on their sadness. I will I will say, though, the movie's done been made, and it, it exists. It's out there. It's an artifact. Some of these people are probably no longer with us. Actually, almost all, almost of, them. all of them. Um, maybe the two young sons are still around, but... There's actually very little information. Uh, obviously, the first thing anyone who watches this movie that is interested does is look up that pet cemetery, and there's very little information on what happened to these people afterwards, which is pretty, which is interesting in and of itself. I think that pet cemetery, the one that lasted, was online. Like you could go and go to a generic web page for burying your pet kind of thing for many years, but that finally died. That was like back in the days of GeoCities and early websites and stuff like that. But now that it exists. I'm glad that we have the artifact. I'm, I, I, I think I would be so, I think Jake has represented why I would fund the movie, why I'm mm-hmm. in some sense sorry that it was made. But if this isn't too morally slippery, I'm just gonna say since it's out there, I'm glad that these people are on camera. I'm glad that this story is told. I think it is kind of a semi-profound meditation on loss and <laughs> the meaning that we pour into these trivial things in our lives. And I do, I mean, I can't do anything for these people, but you know, you do kind of 
you, you have you do have an enormous amount of compassion for them by the end of the movie, uh, especially for the two sons, I think. Yeah. Whose lives are just really, really sad. And any movie that can arouse that degree of empathy in you is not, it's not an altogether bad thing. So that's my perhaps half-hearted defense of, defense yeah. of it. I don't think he should have done it, but since he did, he made something pretty special. Um, but I understand completely why Jake doesn't like that, doesn't like it. And this is one of the only movies, I don't know why exactly. Maybe it's just that these people feels kind of freakish enough that I'm able to divorce myself from something. It is kind of California eccentrics who, to my mind, are <laughs> the least sympathetic people on earth. 45 years ago or 46 years ago. Yeah, and it's a long time ago. But I mean, man, as we were talking, I was thinking about our the church that our mother church that we came out of used to have Thanksgiving prayer nights, and people would people on the Thanksgiving service would get up and give their prayers. And anytime you have like an open mic at a church event or something like that, I find it very difficult. And it's not because most people say the wrong thing, but it's because somebody always says yeah. the wrong thing. And you'll get up, and a guy will genuinely love his wife, and he'll talk about how great she is and how thankful she is. And then every husband that comes after feels the need to say something nice about his wife. And then you have the guy that hates his wife get up and he says something nice about her. And you have, you have those kinds of dynamics yeah. play out. And I just barely stand to be in the room with it. It's <laughs> just, it's like something that I just find to be so utterly cringe. Really almost any time a civilian is on microphone, like if it's, a, if it's, if you're watching a sports event and, you know, the newscaster goes out into the crowd and shoves a microphone in face in somebody's face and asks them something, or it's one of those news on the street kinds of things, or certainly any of those awful prank shows or things that have been around, candid camera type stuff. I can't watch any of that stuff. I, I find it so painful to watch people accidentally reveal themselves. <laughs> mm-hmm. So So I definitely sympathize with where you're coming from. I'm not sure why this movie, well, I think for the reasons we said, it's never quite had that gut reaction yeah. for me. Is there anything else you guys want to say about Gates of Heaven? Anything else you want to say, Ben? Any more defense you want to make? Or No, I don't, I don't know that I do. I mean, I would say Errol Morris would approve of this conversation. He's actually, it's not as evident in this one, but it's very evident if you watch anything else by he him. He better. He, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Shame on him if he doesn't. I mm. mean, come on. No. What was he trying to do? Right. No, no, no. I was going to say, though, that he likes his documentaries to be reflexive. Like, he likes them to be about what does it mean to have different perspectives on something and how does that influence how we see or find the truth? Like, Thin Blue Line is that par excellence. Right. He might say the fact that Jake had such a visceral negative reaction, I've accomplished my goal. I did, I did everything that I wanted to in some sense. Yeah, yeah. he should be able to sit, you know, in the fourth chair. And yeah. be a part of this conversation, and he's going to do something like that. He's got to be mm-hmm. willing for to literally be across from the table from somebody like me who hates it and thinks that he was a jerk, and and be willing to try to answer for it. Right. And, and I I feel like he probably is that kind of guy. I can at least respect that. Yeah. Right. Well, and uh, yeah, he made two early movies, this and Vernon, Florida, which are so much this way. If you don't, if you don't have the if you don't have the guts to have a documentary like this interrogated on that level, then you, you, whether or not the documentary itself should have 
this should exist. You should never have made it. Yeah. Yep. But I think for him, part of the fun is how everyone responds this to it. This exact yeah, thing. Exactly. Yeah. The meta conversation. The meta conversation. I mean, the whole movie is in its of itself a meta conversation. And then we can just have more layers of conversation on top of it. Turtles all the way up. So, yeah. I mean, Mor- Morris is more fun and he's more American. But if you want to see someone who's doing the same kind of stuff, but doing it in a, in a way more honestly, I'd say Herzog is your man. Because he's just always a character in his... And I, it would make a difference, right? If Morris appeared in this documentary, yes, it would make a difference. We might feel quite a bit different, even if the basic narrative and his take on these people and everything was the same. I, I don't know what difference it would make, but it would make a a big one. Yeah, Grizzly Man is pretty great. Mm-hmm. I've seen it several times. I would recommend it. Yeah, and Grizzly Man's about a guy that lives with grizzlies and is an idiot and dies at the hands of the paws. That the pause is. <laughs> and Ben has great empathy for him, as you can tell. Uh, I'm sorry. No, no, no. But no, it's it's it is it's horrible that he died, and he is a fool, as Herzog makes clear. Right, but Herzog doesn't just let him tell his own story. What what actually happens is that Herzog does not play the footage or the audio of the guy dying. He has an image of himself as he hears it for the first time, and so you just see him through glass or something while he's experiencing this guy's death, but you don't actually get to experience it. And then he tells the girlfriend, never play this. Right. Which or, is, or the mother or the ex or whoever it was. He's like, you're like, you should never listen to this. <laughs> which is Herzog performing for the camera and having conceit and being the Herzog that he... So it's, it's all those layers, but I think... All those decisions were made with intentionality. Right. But they, I think... They I all think, were, but do you believe you're, he's capturing something genuine about himself? Like he did sure. have... That he's actually having a visceral reaction, like, please don't listen to this. Well, like, and even so far as he's not, he's there, he's anchoring the story in such a way that you know your relationship is with Herzog and that's what you have to negotiate. Yeah. And so I think like Jake would probably have much less of a problem with that. It's a little bit more like a history book where it's like, all right, Eric Metaxas, this is the only real sort of relationship yeah. I have to negotiate right now. Yeah. I mean, I would say I bet Jake would like Fog of War better. Oh, sure. I don't think. It's, I mean, it's it's not the same thing at all. For all our discussion, Morris actually didn't make that many documentaries that are this sort of. I mean, it's just, it's just it's different when you're doing it for a politician. It's different when you're doing it for Stephen Hawking. The one about the guy that Mr. Death, the guy that was an executioner, he definitely drills down on that guy in this same way. Then Blue Line, I really liked, except for like one scene that was gross. Yeah. Fast, cheap, and out of control. That one I hated. Yeah. Well, we had an opportunity to talk about documentaries. We had the conversation I was hoping we'd have. I <laughs> made us watch Gates of Heaven. So, uh, Ben, how many dead parrots out of 40 <laughs> did you give to Gates of Heaven? <laughs> oh, man. Like 36. 36. Jake, same question. Are dead parrots a good thing? Ooh, good question. <laughs> I, I assume that they are the appropriate way to measure. I, I assume the, the more the better. Yeah, the more parrots. Out of 40? Yeah. Maybe not everything can be defined by the dead parrot ranking system. I don't think it can be. Because I want to give it 40 dead parrots, but I could see a really great argument for zero dead parrots. And... So I'm going to give it 22. Okay. I will also give it 22. So... Wow, that leaves me in a really weird position, yeah. I guess. Mr. Gates of Heaven lover over yeah. here with his 36 parrots, dead yep. parrots. There you go. All right. Well, I didn't make you guys watch Kwanaskazi, so 
there's that at least. Uh, I want to watch it. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> 2024. Oh, man. It's coming. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Which is if people don't know. Well, no, I won't. You can. Unfortunately, no one can be told what Kiwanis Katsi is. You just have to experience it for yourself. All right. Until next time. Uh. Is that a quote for the living? Yeah, it's almost a quote. Death is for the living. But for the dead, not so much. But for the dead, not so much. <laughs>